Well, good morning again. Thank you so much for gathering here this morning. Thanks for bringing the church into this beautiful space uh, that we're able to gather in. Um, if you're somebody that's new to Crosspoint, my name is Jamie and one of the pastors here. It's my joy and privilege uh, to serve here, and it's my joy to be able, be able to open up God's word with you all. And uh, it was just a joy to be able to celebrate our, our new partner. So grateful to just God's uh, grace. It was a class, honestly, you know, it's been almost two years since we've been able to do that, given everything that's been going on uh, in the world. And so just really, really, really thankful. So we are in this series for the better part of 2021. We're journeying through the great book of John, the Gospel of John, in this series that we've entitled Come and See, because it's this invitation to come and to behold who Jesus is. As Pastor Eric said, we don't want to take our eyes off of Jesus, to fixate on Jesus, and that's where we actually find life. And so it's this invitation, would you come? Like God is wooing us, he's beckoning us, and if you're like, I don't know if God's doing that to me. You're here this morning. He is wooing you. He is drawing you. He is the one who's gathered us here for worship. It's not because you made the effort and got yourself here, even though you drove a car or somehow you made your your way here. The reality is God, the God of the universe, the creator and sustainer of all things, like he called you, he invited you, he summoned you here this morning, all right? And so this invitation then that we would actually see who Jesus is. And so we find ourselves in a portion of the the scriptures here towards the end of the book of John. That's this passion narrative where we are just really moments away from Jesus being crucified. And there's a trial that's taking place. So I wanna read today's scripture. I wanna invite you to turn there. It's John chapter 18, verses 28 to 40. Now, if you don't have a Bible uh, with you, one of the ways you can follow along is on your phone, go to cplife.church. And you scroll down, you'll see something that says sermon notes. Click there, and that'll take you to a place where there's the scripture passage. Any of the things that are up on the slides this morning will be there. And as you're turning there, just let me encourage you as well. Uh, This will be mentioned at the end of the service, but just want to encourage you in this. If you're somebody, as a follower of Christ that's never been baptized, we're having a baptism on November the 14th. It'll be after the service outside in the, the lawn area. And so please come seek one of us out or go to CP dot church slash events uh, and you'll find a sign up there for that all right so let me go ahead and read john chapter 18 this is god's word to us this morning this is jesus standing before Pilate. he's been brought in this trial that's taking place it says this then they led jesus from caiaphas to the governor's headquarters and it was early morning and they did not enter the headquarters themselves otherwise they would be defiled and unable to eat the passover So Pilate came out to them and said, what charge do you bring against this man? And they answered him, if this man weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you, which is a non-answer, really, if you think about it, right? They're not even answering the question. Verse 31, Pilate told them, you take him and judge him according to your law. Well, it's not legal for us to put anyone to death, the Jews declared. They said this so that Jesus' words might be fulfilled, indicating what kind of death he was going to die. Verse 33, then Pilate went back into the headquarters. He summoned Jesus and he said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, are you asking this on your own or have others told you about me? I'm not a Jew, am I, Pilate replied. Your own nation and the chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? My kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Ah, so you are a king then, Pilate asked. You say that I'm a king, Jesus replied. 
I was born for this and have come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And what is truth, said Pilate. And after he had said this, he went out to the Jews again and he told them, I find no grounds for charging him. You have a custom, though, that I release one prisoner to you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, not this man, but Barabbas. And now Barabbas was a revolutionary. This is God's word to us this morning. As we get into this this morning, also just a welcome. This is a fifth Sunday, so we have uh, the elementary age kids in here. Guys, thank you so much for being part of things. Uh, I know your uh, leader, Miss Jessica, has given some notes, I think, that you can uh, take and all of that. And so thank you. We're really excited to have you all uh, in here. What I want to do is just look for a moment. There's just this, this setup. Like, what's the context? What's taking place? Does just sort of catch us up to speed? That Jesus, as we looked at last week, he's betrayed by Judas, one of his followers, one of his closest friends, somebody that knew Jesus intimately in a place that they knew well, that they would often go to pray and to commune together and just to spend time together. So he betrays Jesus. Jesus is arrested, and there's this trial late at night, and it is not a legal trial in any way, shape, or form. Like, it's this illegal proceeding that's taken place. Jesus is brought to the high priest, and they want to accuse Jesus, not just in a way that they would punish him according to their religious law, but they want to see him dead. They want to put him to death. But given that the Jews are not the rulers of their own lives, that the Roman Empire is over them, they are not allowed to actually put anyone to death without a Roman ruler signing off on it. So you have Pilate, that's where we find ourselves, who is this ruler sent by the Caesar to this particular part of the world who is ruling and reigning there. And so they need Pilate to actually enforce this. And so as Jesus stands before Pilate, right, he is summoned in couple things I think we just got to see in this in these verses as we look at verses 28 to 32 and so for one there's an irony that's taking place like John is writing this certainly he's got the help of the Holy Spirit inspiration of the Holy Spirit but there's this beauty to it there's these layers there's this complexity like I don't know if you noticed this but here's what it said as we began reading this that as the Jews show up it says they did not enter the headquarters themselves Otherwise, they would be defiled and unable to eat the Passover. So as we look at this, let me put before you, there is a deep irony that's taking place. You have a group of people, these Jewish leaders, that are so committed to not violating the law that they're there to celebrate this Passover feast. It's, it's the moment in the Jewish calendar where they celebrate their liberation from slaves in Egypt as God sent the angel of death that killed the firstborn of the Egyptians and the Israelites were protected by killing a Passover lamb, putting the, door, the blood on the doorpost and as the angel of death came, would pass over them. And suddenly then after that, the Egyptians were like, get out of here. And the Pharaoh says, just go, get out of this land. And so they begin kind of their liberation march to the promised land. And so they celebrated this year in and year out. And so they wanna be able to participate fully in the life of this great feast. But they know if they go into this Gentile headquarters and that it would be in a violation. And so they're following the law meticulously, religiously, like it's at just the deepest possible level. And the irony is this, that they are so committed, right? They've got this unrighteous 
self-righteousness, that they are so dialed in, like we gotta do the right thing, we can't defile ourselves, we've gotta obey the law, and the one who came to fulfill all the law is standing right by them, the one that they've actually brought to be judged. And not only that, as they are engaged in this Passover, killing thousands upon thousands of lambs, the Passover lamb is there. And so what you have is a group of people that are so confused as to what actually is transpiring. Like they look at Jesus and rather than submit to him and surrender to him and acknowledge who he is, they are caught up in obeying the law and miss the one who's come to fulfill the law. And I can look at that and I can, I can be judgmental and I can be self-righteous about their self-righteousness, which just goes to prove how wicked the human heart actually is, right? And so I can look at that and think, oh, I'm glad I don't do that. And then I have to stop and be like, yeah, but I do. And if you're honest, you do. And it's not just the people a couple thousand years ago and it's not these Jewish, just these Jewish leaders, that there's something in the human heart that is always going out just looking for our sense of rightness, do we measure up? Are we enough? Are we justified? Does God love us? And it's not that the Bible is anti-effort. But effort is a slippery slope because so often it can turn into a mindset of earning. And the people that have brought Jesus in have a mindset that says, I've got to earn the affection of God. I've got to be so committed to the law and then have missed the one who was there to fulfill the law. Because the reality is, they can't perfectly fulfill it, I can't perfectly fulfill it, you can't perfectly fulfill it, right? And most of us found that out on our drive to church this morning, right? Like that's just the reality of the situation. Maybe a way to think about this is when effort attempts earning, we actually become enslaved. When our efforts take on an earning mindset, we get more trapped, we get more stuck, we become enslaved. So there of a time of celebration where they remembered their liberation from slavery in Egypt. They don't realize it, but it's as if they're going back to Egypt. And they're actually in reality celebrating that because they're in bondage to the law. They don't actually recognize that their efforts are entangling them more and more because they think that they can earn. Yesterday afternoon, um, it's, isn't it glorious? I mean, finally, it's like, oh, I don't mind living in Florida the last couple days, right? Um, and so uh, that's my own issue to work out, but anyway. Um, weather's beautiful, and I was working on some sermon stuff, and because um, I'm always prepared and never do anything last minute. Uh, but anyway, um, and uh, I decided, man, I'm just gonna walk outside for a moment. And as I walked out into the backyard, um, I noticed my younger daughter was out there and she was just enjoying being out in the, the sunshine and just enjoying some time out there. And then I looked, all right, and I saw uh, our dog, our pandemic puppy. This is Bailey, all right? Some of you, if you've ever been to our house, you know you will be greeted enthusiastically, we could say, right? Um, and she might pee on the floor if she greets you, but whatever, right? Um, and so um, Bailey um, is out there in the yard, but something different. It's not uncommon for her to be out in the yard. But as I walked off kind of our back deck and there's a step, I look to the right and there we have this uh, jasmine, this vine that is terribly overgrown. You might have seen it in the back of that picture, which I've often thought I should probably do something about that, but have neglected it. Um, and there's kind of this raised, like these stones that, that we have and her back legs are kind of on the, these stones and her front legs 
are down, her paws are on, on the lawn. And she's just staring off like into the distance. I was like, huh, this is kind of weird. Um, I was like, did my daughter tell her like, to, to stay? And she's actually being obedient? Because that would be a miracle, right? Um, and so I say to McKinley, I'm like, hey, what's going on? She's like, yeah, I don't know. Bailey hasn't moved in like 20 or 30 minutes. She's just been like staring like, like this. I'm like, huh, very strange, all right? So I was like, well, Bailey. And so I, I summoned her. I was like, Bailey, come. And I gave her, gave her the command. And this time she actually sought to be obedient. And as she lunged forward, what I realized had taken place is that she had gotten herself entwined in the vines. They had wrapped around her legs. And every time she gave the effort to go forward, it tightened its grip on her. All right. And so the more effort that she put forward, the more stuck she actually got. And so we left her there overnight. No, I'm just kidding. All right. Um, <laughs> I'm very cruel. Anyway, um, and those of you that are wondering, she wasn't stuck in this picture. I went back and recreated it, all right? But um, so I tell you that, for one, because as we think about this, right, this desire of the human heart that's always going out there and is bent on, I've got to put forth effort. Effort on its own is not bad. But with a mindset towards earning, the insidiousness of sin wraps tighter and tighter around us, and the more effort we put forth, the more we think it's up to us, the more we try and free ourselves to do it on our own, the more it wraps around us and enslaves us, and we are stuck. And what we have here in John 18 is a group of people that are bent on, we've got to earn, we've got to do this, and the more they do it, on a week where they're celebrating their liberation, the more they're actually becoming enslaved. So we can look at that again and we can think, okay, well, I'm sure I don't really do it to that extent. Like maybe this isn't that big of a deal. But I think we have to ask ourselves this question. What are you and I relying on for this sense of, for this righteousness? Meaning my sense of rightness, like what, what am I looking to to justify me? What, what things am I doing that maybe on their own, it's not bad effort, but man, there's something about the human heart that just twists it and perverts good things that the Lord has given to us, and they become something that we build an identity on. And we put forth the effort, and we wouldn't maybe say we're trying to earn God's approval, but deep down there's this insecurity that is driving us. And so we put forth more and more effort, and we get more and more stuck. Let me put before you just a few things. Maybe you can relate to something on this list, or what could you come up with as your, your own list? But what are you looking for for that sense of rightness? Well, maybe it's your work ethic. Is it good to work hard? Absolutely. But is it possible you look down your nose at other people that you view, like, well, they're, they're lazy or they can't get it together, and you pride yourself on how hard you work. You will outwork everybody. You're like, hustle's my middle name, right? I'm gonna out-hustle everybody. Not bad to work hard, but is there this sense perhaps of like, I only feel good about who I am, this sense of rightness based on that. Maybe you've got a high sense of responsibility. Being responsible is a good thing. But is it possible that you're looking down your nose at other people that you view to not be as responsible as you are? Maybe you look out over the political landscape and you find your sense of rightness based on your political party or affiliation. And if we say, oh, that doesn't exist in our world, you haven't paid attention, right? I mean, it's just the reality of these things. Maybe you look out over it and it's like, hey, 
My sense of rightness comes from my theology. I love theology. I did the seminary thing. I'm pro-theology and studying, but there is this real possibility that we begin to judge fellow brothers and sisters in Christ because they don't believe exactly the way that I believe. And so we find our sense of rightness from our theology. Maybe you found your sense of rightness over the past year based on like what you think about masks, right? I mean, we've seen that divide certainly play out. Maybe you're somebody that's like, hey, I'm really good with getting a plan together. And so your sense of rightness is when you can have everything organized and structured, and that's a, that can be a really good thing. And you look down your nose at those that seem to be more last minute. And then you flip it, and some of you are like, well, no, I'm the flexible one. I can go with the flow, all right? And you look down your nose at those that they're always so structured and uptight or whatever. Like, that can be the sense of rightness. Maybe your sense of rightness is about how you handle money. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be a saver. And you look down your nose at those that are prone to spend, and those that are spending look down their nose at those that are saving and saying, like, I can't, can't believe you just kind of hoard your money to yourself. Like, I'm a generous person, right? You can see this tension. Parenting, how you parent. You probably wouldn't say this out loud, but you get around other people's kids and you're like, really? Like, that's how they parent, right? Like, you begin to see that. Maybe you've built a sense of rightness around, you know, how you view education with the various options. Like, oh, we're doing it the right way. They're, they're, and we can keep going, right? We don't have time to keep going. But like, there are so many things. The human heart is just prone to find our sense of rightness somewhere. And Jesus is inviting us to trust him for our righteousness, for our rightness, for our justification. And so as we move through this then, we now see Jesus's interaction specifically with Pilate. And Pilate is a man as well. If you go and read some of the history pieces around that, that, that talk about that time, and again, we don't have the time or space to get into all of this, but it's fair to say this. He was a man who was incredibly insecure, power hungry, and would go to great lengths to make sure everybody knew that I'm the man. Like, I'm in charge here, all right, and everybody needs to bow to me. Like, so he was bent on just doing that and letting everybody know. So he's got this power idol. His sense of rightness came from, I'm the one in charge. And Jesus shows up and has this interaction with him. And I want us to look at this because there's a call not only for Pilate, but there's a call for all of us to be people that would surrender to Jesus. And when I say surrender, keep this in mind. For some of you, it might be for the first time to surrender your life to Christ. But the surrender doesn't stop the moment you pray a prayer and accept Jesus. The surrender then is this ongoing, take up your cross and follow him, believing that Jesus, following him the way of Jesus is the best possible way to live. And so Pilate has this question for him. Are you the king? Are you the king of the Jews? As he interacts with Jesus. Now, this is a super important question. And throughout this passage, and even as we move into chapter 19 next week, this idea of the lordship, the kingship of Jesus. John is actually telling a story that the coronation of Jesus is when he's actually elevated and put on the cross, wearing a crown of thorns. But our modern sensibilities, and the people back then, they're what would have been their modern sensibilities that we view as ancient sensibilities, would still say the same. Like, they're thinking of how we're in an entirely different way. They're thinking of kingship in a different way. Jesus can't possibly be the king if he's been put on a cross. But prior to that happening, Pilate wants to ask, like, hey, are you a king? 
For one, he's got to make sure that there's no threat to his power, that the empire stays stable, because he doesn't want to lose his position. If word gets back to Rome that Pilate can't keep things together in that area, they'll find somebody else who can. And so he's asking these questions. Now, if you've read through any of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, been studying this together, you're probably picking up on a pattern. People ask Jesus a question, and what is his normal response? I will meet your question with a question. And my question will actually get under the surface. It's gonna deal with some of the heart level matters. And so I think what's taking place here is Jesus' response. So let's look at this for a moment. Um, As they have this interaction, all right, um, Jesus says to them, all right, after he's asked, are you the king of the Jews? Verse 34, hey, are you asking this on your own or have others told you about me? And I think for Jesus, He's trying to take the conversation out of the abstract. Like, I do think we like to analyze Jesus. We like to study Jesus. We just don't like to surrender to Jesus, if we're honest. It might be too costly. And and Pilate is faced with this. I think what Jesus is doing, he's trying to drive home, like, hey, this is personal. This is not an abstraction. My kingship, my lordship. Like, I'm standing before you, Pilate. And so when he asks, are you asking this on your own or have others told, told you about me? He's asking Pilate, and he's asking us to consider, like, is it personal for you? Do you just know Jesus in the abstract, or are you actually surrendered to him? Whatever that might bring. I love the way C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity speaks of this, and you might be familiar with this quote, but I think it's helpful to to come back to where we wrestle with, who is Jesus, his identity? And the popular notion and the tendency is to let's put him in the category He's a great teacher. Jesus is a great teacher. Jesus, the greatest teacher that's ever lived or will live. But that's not all he is. And so Lewis says this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Well, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says that he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Lewis continues, either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. So you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. Lewis is getting at what is happening in this text. Is it personal? Is Jesus just an abstraction? Is it one to just ask questions of? Because do you see where You read it a moment ago where Pilate goes near the end of his interaction. He asked this question, well, what is truth? Now, to ask that question is a good thing. If you're somebody that's wrestling with like, hey, what does the Bible teach? Is this true? Can I believe this? How do I have knowledge of God? Like, what is that? Like, ask the questions. Please bring the questions, all right? Not saying we have all of the answers, but like, we're on this journey. We're fellow people that are just wrestling with these things. Don't claim to have it all figured out. But I do know enough to know, like, how does Jesus talk about himself? And so Pilate asks, well, what is truth? And at first glance, it might be like, oh, he's really wanting to engage. Well, the very next thing we learn is that he walks away. 
So I would put before you what I think oftentimes happens as a maybe way to think about this is that when he asked this, it's moral objection that's actually masquerading as philosophical inquiry. Moral objection masquerading as philosophical inquiry. Let me, what do I mean? At the end of the day, Pilate has a heart, like I have a heart and you have a heart, and there's this propensity, like we don't want to surrender. I, I want to do what I want to do. I want to be Lord of my life. And it's ultimately this moral issue. And not wanting to contend with that, he asked the sort of philosophical, more abstract, more intellectual question. Those questions are great to ask. But sometimes we keep asking those questions because we don't actually want to submit and follow Jesus. And I believe Pilate is guilty of this. If we could peer into his heart, I think we would see a man that's incredibly insecure, who doesn't know how long he's going to be able to stay in this role, who is constantly trying to showcase for the world that he's got everything figured out. And when I see him that way, I realize, oh man, we, we could be buddies. Like, because my tendency is to do the same thing. This sense of insecurity, this wondering about my rightness. Do I measure up? Have I done enough? Like this low grade sort of just like current of anxiety that runs. And what preceded this, though, was so beautiful. Jesus, prior to Pilate asking what is truth, said these words. He said in verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus. And if my kingdom were of the world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. So when he says these words, right, when he's talking about the world, and his king, he's not saying, my kingdom is all abstract, and it's up in the clouds, and it's just this you know, ethereal sort of thing. No, no, he's saying, my kingdom has the greatest impact on this world. It's not detached from this world. In fact, the way to enjoy this world that God has given us, this life that he's given us, is to align ourselves with the supreme, ultimate reality that is Jesus, him as the truth. Like Jesus stands before Pilate, not as an abstraction, but as the way, the truth, and the life. It's truth in the flesh, it's truth embodied. And when Jesus says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You want real Passover liberation? You want real liberation from the slavery, from being stuck? Embrace this truth. Make it personal. Walk with Jesus. Surrender your life to him. So when he speaks of the world, he's saying, there's a way the world does power. There's a way that the world does things. He's like, that's not how my kingdom rules. If it was, he's like, you realize, right? I could call down any number of like, you know, angels to come and help and like, you're just done like that, right? Like Jesus certainly could do that. But the way of Jesus's kingdom is weakness that's actually true power and strength. It's sacrifice, it's death that leads to life. Like, it's totally upside down. Pilate knows nothing of that. And though I know a bit about it intellectually and in studying it, the reality of my heart is it still wants to believe the ways of the world. I've got to get mine. You've got to get yours. And so Jesus puts before him, no, no, I've come, and he says this, to testify to the truth. I love the way he speaks of this. He's like, I was born for this and I've come into the world for this. I mean, what a setup. I was born for this purpose. Are you ready to hear what it is? And then Jesus says, to testify to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth actually listens to my voice. We all know this, right? Like, 
whether you, if you've got your own children or if you ever babysat kids or you, right, like there are times when you as the person in charge might say something to them and it's not that they didn't actually hear what you had to say, all right, but they heard it, they heard the words and chose to just go do whatever they wanted. And everyone responds, I'm sure we all respond with just kindness and grace and joy, right? But that happens, all right? And if you're like, oh, I can't believe these kids these days, you did the same thing, all right? And you still do the same thing, and so do I, all right? Um, we just have the grown-up versions of it. What Jesus is saying here is like, those that know me as the truth, like they actually hear my voice. You wanna know if you're walking in the truth? Like, are you listening to Jesus' voice? Not just the parts that you like, not just the, the thing, oh yeah, he's a great teacher, or this or that, but no, his voice is saying, he is Lord of Lords. He's the King of Kings. He is ultimate reality. He is the supreme reality of everything. So when Jesus speaks these words to Pilate, what would lead him to say, well, what is truth? He's trying to avoid the thing. He's trying to avoid the issue. And Jesus is saying, the truth is standing before you. And the truth continues to stand before us through God's word that reveals the truth of who Jesus is. And the question becomes, are you and I then living in light of what is actually reality? To live according to the world and the structures of the world and the things that the world values is actually going against the grain of the universe of how God has actually decide, designed things to function. In a book I finished recently called Live No Lies, the author says this, and he, he contrasts living according to the truth and what is the ultimate reality, that is Jesus, or living according to the ways of the world. And hear these words. He says this. So when we believe the truth, that is, ideas that correspond to reality, we actually show up to reality in such a way that we flourish and thrive. We show up to our bodies and to our sexuality, to our inter interpersonal relationships, and above all, to God himself in a way that is congruent with the creator's wisdom and good intentions for his creation. And as a result, we tend to be happy. Now, that doesn't mean forever happiness and that everything's just gonna go according to plan, but there is a way when we embrace the truth and we follow Jesus that's in line with what is the overarching reality. Do you know that? Or you can, and I can choose to go the way of the world. So when we believe the lies, ideas that are not congruent with the reality of God's wise and loving design, and then tragically, we open our bodies to those lies and let them into our muscle memories. We allow an ideological cancer to infect our souls. We live at odds with reality. And as a result, we struggle to thrive. It's worth asking when we feel the struggle. I mean, sometimes it's just the brokenness of the world. But sometimes it's the brokenness of my own heart and of your heart. I'm like, man, something feels off. What lie might you and I believing? Is how we're living and the truths, the things we're believing, is it congruent with Jesus as truth embodied? Are you trying to find your sense of rightness through something other than Jesus? That's a lie. Are you believing the lie of the serpent that's as old as Genesis 3 that says God's holding out on you somehow? Have you become deceived thinking you need to take matters into your own hands? And so we gotta ask, like Pilate here is asked, are you going to walk away from ultimate reality? To not follow the way of Jesus is to say, I'm going to go contrary to God and his design and his purposes. And that's why Pilate says, well, what is truth? 
He doesn't want to deal with that. It's too hard. It's too costly. But God in his grace, and here's what we'll close with, knows that it's costly. He knows that we mess up. He knows that we are people that will consistently over and over and over again fail to live in a way that's congruent with reality, that we won't always live according to the truth of who Jesus is. We won't always find our identity in him. We will look to other things. And in those moments, we need to remember, like what's going to warm our hearts to living in a way that's congruent with reality, as we've been emphasizing this whole service, We have to look to Jesus. We have to see Jesus. We have to just gaze upon him until it begins to melt our hearts. And what we see here in these last few verses, verses 38 to 40, is what Jesus is doing and what God is orchestrating and what seems like Pilate putting together a plan. Because Pilate's in a political jam here, right? What's going on is he doesn't think Jesus is really guilty of anything, certainly not anything worthy of death. But he knows there's this group of Jewish people and he wants to keep peace in the kingdom. And he's like, because at the end of the day, he's like, I don't want to lose my position of influence and power. And so if I could just kind of quell everything. And so he's like, I don't know, here's what I'll do. So after he asks the question, what is truth? He devises a plan. He's like, oh yeah, there's this tradition. There's this thing that we do every year at the Passover that a particular prisoner can be released. And in his mind, he's like, cool, I will get out of this political jam right here, right now, because there is no way that the people won't choose to release Jesus. He's like, of course, when they're faced with the decision, they'll be like, okay, fine, yeah, we were kind of wrong. This was a bit overblown. Sure, let's, let's release Jesus. But 38 to 40 says this. He says, I find no grounds for charging him. You have a custom that I release one prisoner to you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, not this man, but Barabbas. And now Barabbas was a revolutionary. Let's close with this. What you have here happening in the midst of Pilate scheming, in the midst of Pilate trying to figure things out, to run things in his own strength and power, is God working sovereignly in all of that to provide the substitute that you and I need. Like, you want to have your heart melted. You want to know that you can actually surrender to this God, to this truth, to live, you know, like congruently with what is the supreme reality of the universe. We have to see what Jesus has done for us. Because in this moment, it's this picture of what's going to take place just in the next chapter in John 19. Barabbas is a man who is guilty, who is condemned, who deserves death. And he is set free because Jesus goes in his place. And in this microcosm here, you have this substitution taking place. And what Jesus is ultimately going to do on the cross is he's going to be substituted, not only for Barabbas, but for you and me and every single person who's ever walked the face of the earth. Because we all deserve death, we are all Barabbas. Like we all deserve condemnation, we all deserve the wrath of God. And Jesus says, I'll go. And something I learned this week, the name Barabbas, all right? The translation of that is it literally means son of the father. And at another layer, what John is letting us in on, that he's communicating to us, is how fascinating. There's the son of the father. There's Barabbas, who is standing before the son of the father. 
this son, Barabbas, of the father is going to go free because the son of the heavenly father would actually go in his place. And when you and I embrace that and we understand the substitution that he has made on your behalf, on my behalf, and it begins to melt our hearts, we then understand, oh, we've been made sons. We've been made daughters because of the righteousness of Jesus that's given to us. This is why Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Is Jesus worth following? Is he worth surrendering to? When you doubt that, when you're like, I don't know, maybe I need to do this, maybe I don't wanna obey, maybe I don't wanna you know, pay attention to these things, go back to the substitution. Go back to what he did for you, that he was substituted in your place, died the death that you deserve, that I deserve, and three days later, walked out of that tomb, proving that he had conquered Satan's sin and death and proving that his sacrifice was acceptable to the Father. And now when the Father looks at you, he doesn't see guilt, he doesn't see shame, he doesn't see brokenness, he sees the righteousness of his son Jesus. That has been imputed to you, that has been given to you. And if you don't know that reality, may today be the day that you trust in the finished work of Jesus and your, your like, just debt that is owed gets transferred to Jesus and you get everything that's in his account. You get all of his righteousness. And forever and always, God will see you that way. And so we wanna celebrate that reality. We wanna give a, a time to respond. And so I'm gonna pray for us. And as I pray, and as you reflect, just be thinking, what is it that the Lord is leading me to repent in? Knowing that repentance is a gift. On this Halloween day, that's also this Reformation day, and we think of Martin Luther, and he nailed the 95 Theses. Here's the reality. He said all of life is to be one of repentance. That's actually where life is found. To repent means to turn and to trust in Jesus, to surrender to him. Would you remember then what Christ has done? And we're gonna rejoice together. So let me pray, and then I'll tell us how we're gonna continue in the service. But let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your kindness, your grace, your mercies that are new each and every day. Jesus, thank you that you substitute yourself for us. Help us to never grow callous to that reality. Help us to fix our eyes on that. May we see that you are the truth. We want to we live following you. We want to live what is a, the only true way to live, and it's the way of Jesus. And when we mess up, and we will, we thank you that there is grace upon grace upon grace, that we can never exhaust the well of your grace and your mercy and your love. And so, God, as we continue in our service, I pray, God, that you would get your glory and that we as your people would just experience a deep and abiding joy. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.